Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the architecture channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Nushal De Silva, and I am delighted to be joined by Reinhold Martin, a historian of architecture and media and a professor at the Graduate School of Architecture, Planning and Preservation at Columbia University. Today, we'll be talking about his book, Knowledge Worlds, Media, Materiality and the Making of the Modern University, published by Columbia University Press in 2021. Welcome, Reinhold, and thank you so much for making time to chat today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for making the time and, 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 you know, reading the book so carefully. Uh, and before we dive into the book, um, I thought it might be helpful for you to situate it within your larger body of writing on architecture and and media or architecture as media, because um, that's such a key focus of the book. So how did you come to this larger research interest and what led you to write this book in particular? Well, there, there are a number of uh, points of departure for the book. Um, and uh, and and in in a way, like we we could say that this conversation, uh, for which I again am very grateful, uh, it brings us full circle uh, to some of the points of departure, which is to say the the sort of different contexts and media uh, that have been understood in one way or another uh, as infrastructural, let's say. Uh, to knowledge making and including, you know, podcasts like this, um, and uh, and in particular to academic uh, life, culture, and practice. So uh, I actually began began to, in 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 that sense also. This um, book is a, is a bit of a return for me in in terms of my own work to earlier uh, interests and earlier concerns, uh, most of which are collected, uh, but not exhausted by any means, uh, in my first book, The Organizational Complex, which uh, is an architectural and media history of corporations or, you know, of corporate architecture in the expanded uh, sense um, that centers on research campuses and and other kind of interfaces 
ultimately between uh, in the United States corporations and academia in the context of the emergent military industrial complex, eventually the military industrial and academic complex. So, so in that sort of nexus, uh, many of these the concerns you know that I pursued in in this book were sort of lurking, and there are bits and pieces that I'm quite directly building on. Uh, in particular, the problem, as it were, of the university itself as uh, a corporation, and um, and others that that have emerged you know, you know during the course uh, of doing this work. The, the 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 phrasing of your question is absolutely, I think, precise in in this sense because it's it is exactly the sort of let's say distinction between architecture and media, like you know, in the sense of architecture and and photography or architecture and film, uh, of which there is a voluminous scholarship, uh, and architecture as media, or as I put it in that book, and I continue I, to rephrase in this one. Uh, architecture as one among many media. Uh, so what that means uh, can be many things at once. Uh, it can also be understood uh, at both a, a sort of material and, and let's just say literal level, uh, and uh, but also as a kind of uh, metaphorical level. So for example, the expression computer architecture, which again, I dealt with and, and historicized to some extent in the, the other book, uh, it can be understood in, in, at both levels at once. On the one hand, there is a literal material architecture, including the design of the uh, of the object itself, uh, that runs through the history of computing. Uh, and and then there's there's what sometimes is seen as a kind of metaphorical architecture, the kind of logical structure, uh, and so on. The approach to this to both books, uh, but but kind of sort of focused in a particular way in, in knowledge worlds uh, has to do with the relation, in a sense, with those two levels. We, we could call it the material and the ideational. And, uh, and in that sense, the, um, the, the larger project does have to do with exploring both methodologically and historically the, the limits as well as the possibilities of materialism uh, and and the kind of focus on material infrastructures that uh, media history uh, has has in particular uh, invested quite heavily uh, in in recent years and it was again in that context uh, in, in institutional settings conversations debates amongst colleagues across fields in this kind of interdiscipline that we refer to not so much as media studies but media history uh, and that in which in which I work, uh, that that some of these concerns uh, came into focus. Yeah, you're pointing to so you're point you're pulling together a number of threads here from you know architecture as one of many media, media um, and the, sort of the mat- materiality of those media. Um, but I do want to kind of now begin to sort of home in on the university in particular. And in the book, you discuss or introduce the idea of a media complex and the university as one such media complex. So um, sort of in relation to this book, could you talk about what, a little bit about what you mean by this term? Yeah, um, well, in short, Plato's cave, but in, 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 in its mo- construed in its most literal form, but also of course, as a, as a figure 
for for ideation and its its consequences in the history of philosophy as well as in uh, in the history of intellectual work, uh, uh, but also in its in its material uh, form. You know, a cave, stone, fire, or sunlight, uh, shadows, screens, and and human beings uh, interacting right in a in a sort of um, set of uh, socio-technical uh, relations. Uh, more, more broadly, more generally, um, you can think about the the, the uh, media complex or a media complex as a network of objects and subjects, sort of wired together by at different scales. So there's also a scale dimension to it. From in this case, lighting fixtures to corporate persons, for example, uh, and and all of which in the in the contents text of of thinking and, and historicizing uh, colleges and universities uh, as media complexes uh, are ways of grasping and, and, and specifying the, 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 the claim, which is a central claim of the book, um, that, that these institutions, universities, constitute, let's say, provisional solutions to boundary problems. Uh, and in other words, that, you know, the question is, where is the inside and where is the outside? Where's the boundary, uh, you know, that separates Plato's cave from the realm of ideas? And, and, um, and so uh, the, the, that, those boundaries are, you know, are often very, very direct and very literal, uh, you know, things like gates, uh, admissions offices, uh, but also extension uh, stations, experiment stations, and ex- other forms of extension uh, that, that reach you know, well beyond the material boundaries of, of, the, of, of the physical campus. And, and so the, um, the question as to, uh, in, in one direction, what architects would call plan, uh, <clears throat> where is the inside, where is the outside, how is, how is that relation produced, managed, uh, and, and in a sense traversed, um, is, is one, you know, general subject uh, to and, and set of questions to which the concept of the media complex provides a kind of map uh, and, and a way of kind of thinking through the, the relation between gates, admissions offices, libraries, and, and uh, you know, corporations, for example. Um, and, and then in the other direction, what architects refer to as section, you know, cross-section, uh, relations of above and below, uh, typically hierarchies of above and below, uh, both of which entail exclusions in, as well as inclusions as well as uh, along uh, the, the the lines that, that we can understand as passages and quite literally infrastructural passages in in some sets networks of communication uh, in others and uh, but also social and economic relations uh, at other levels from the uh, relation of the university, the, the campus, for example, to its immediate urban or exurban environs, uh, to to the the question socially and economically of who does and does not have access to Plato's cave, um, and so uh, so the 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 inside outside upstairs downstairs infrastructures, the ways of mediating those relations uh you, you know from actual staircases to uh to um screens uh and access to both um are elements and 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 refer to dimensions and scales within media complexes uh that are you know similarly pro- only provisionally bounded of course one could extend uh for example the post-war 
U.S. research university uh, into the military-industrial complex, broadly construed and understand this uh, this system uh, or system of systems to operate at a, at a national and indeed transnational imperial scale, as well as uh, as the, that the kind of the scale, for example, of the laboratory. And what um, I am attempting to do, at least with this this concept, concept is is in that sense. To, to think also and translate, in effect, another sort of very classically architectural question, the question of scale, uh, into um, media history and into a way of thinking both materially and, uh, we can say, ideationally, uh, about uh, a, the, the sort of uh, interpenetration of scales that, that I think is better described as kaleidoscopic rather than telescopic in the sense of nested one within the other. Uh, and I think, you know, any of us who work or study on or off campuses uh, of various kinds um, are, are, are familiar almost intuitively with, with this, this, this kaleidoscope, um, the, uh, which on the one hand uh, can be experienced and manifest in, in very intimate uh, senses and intimate scales, like sitting in a library, reading a book, um, and and while on the other, uh, at the same and at the same moment, but not necessarily in a simple linear kind of zooming in and zooming out, but but in a in a kind of collapse, uh, 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 almost like a fractal collapse uh, of these sort of patterns one onto the other, uh, clearly be and transparently in some cases be participating. Uh, in the production of knowledge and power and social relations and uh, economic uh, structures uh, that cannot simply be understood uh, at the scale of the chair table uh, reading room complex uh, that is uh, a library. So, so this is this this concept of the media complex is inherently scalar. It responds to you know, hypotheses within media history within infrastructure studies uh, and so on that it, that have to do with questions concerning scale uh, and but it does so in a in a in a very particular way that I think is you know resonates with with, with the both expansive and intensive uh, modes and descriptions uh, that we have across disciplines uh, now today that are concerned with a, a, a broad, concept, a very broad media concept beyond the sort of narrow definition uh, of, let's say, information uh, storage and transmission devices and such. Um, but but, but the, 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 the principle of the media complex uh, responds very in, in, a, in a way I think that can be distinguished from, from other, uh, other, um, other approaches and other strategies, uh, which I can just briefly encapsulate uh, in which I try in, in, the, in the book to briefly encapsulate in the opening short prologue uh, with the kind of allegory, we can call it the allegory of the dumbwaiter uh, in Jefferson's, Thomas Jefferson's dining room in Monticello, a space, a public sphere that is not located on the University of Virginia campus per se, but is very much part of that campus from its, prior to its founding to, to uh, immediately thereafter. Uh, and is serviced and, in a sense, made possible uh, by the the labor uh, and the enslavement of uh, of dozens of individuals uh, who care for the you know sort of 
lives and and in the case of the dumbwaiter the conversation uh, that is lived and practiced in the dining room amongst elite white uh, sort of um, uh, citizens and so so in on the one you know the intimacy of of the dining room jefferson's dining room and the even more profound and violent intimacy of slavery uh is uh i think kind of made tangible in the, in the dumbwaiter while at the same time um uh the, the the sort of extension of these systems which overlap as i also try to show briefly in the um in the uh in the prologue uh, with uh, ideas about public education and to which the University of Virginia itself is located and the production of citizens, again, you know, universally white and male in, in that context, um, that, that, that extend across in Jefferson's uh, mind and work of the entire state, if not the entire nation uh, already at that time. So, so that's another instance in which the tales, the, the scales, um, they, in a sense, collapse and 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 overlap and enfold more than simply telescope, uh, since you have essentially the same relations mediated through different infrastructures, you know, from dumbwaiters to property lines uh, at at the different uh, at the different levels. Um, and I don't know whether you want to sort of talk about you, you've mentioned this a little bit now, but I don't know whether you want to talk a little bit about the the overall structure of the book that is you know sort of divided into four different sections with two chapters in each section. Um, but I did want to, and I know we're going to talk a little bit about materiality and then this question of the threshold or the boundary, the the idea of inside and outside, and the following questions. Um, but I want to first focus on one of the ideas you introduced, well, that you've introduced in your earlier work and that you were introducing here in this book, which is the idea of the university as a corporate person. Um, what is the role of architecture in as an apparatus in constituting the university as such? And what are some of the real effects of this legal fiction, this legal fiction of the corporate person on knowledge production in the university? And this is, I think, something that you go into into depth in the first chapter, but then it carries through the whole book. Yes, yes. No, uh, thanks for that. I, it, it's absolutely a central theme, and so in, and and it's actually a great place to point from which to to think about the at least intended structure uh, of the book, including a kind of narrative arc, uh, as you as you um, say. Uh, because the book is actually not a, a single story. It's not. It's not a history in a in a single narrative sense of universities or the transition from colleges, the residential colleges into research universities and so on. Uh, a lot of important and necessary work along those lines has been done on which I rely, you know, very deeply such that I'm able at least to, to attempt something different. And, and really it's on, on the, the basis of, of these kind of more, more integrated narratives that that this work is built but so the way yeah i mean there are these several different scales again at which to think about this this structure one is in terms of the four parts um which uh I, each of which contains two chapters so so there's a kind of interplay within uh each each section or part um that work their way chronologically from the very late 18th century into the last 
quarter or so of the 20th century. Uh, so basically from around 1800, give or take, to around 1975 or so. In other words, from from the uh, the, the sort of age of liberalism uh, to the dawn uh, in, in most accounts, or at least in most sort of, you know, sort of intuitive understandings of a neoliberal uh, era. Um, but this, again, is not a simple from to story. And, and in, in fact, in the question that you're asking, we already see um, aspects and, 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 in a sense, uh, figures uh, that are, again, classically on the one hand associated with, with in this case, economic liberalism, uh, the corporate person being born um, around um, in the early 19th century. Uh, of course, the, the history goes goes much further back as well, but, but in, I pick up the story there. Uh, and, and in a sense, being reborn uh, in, in the later 20th century, uh, and particularly in particular on university campuses around the, the practice and processes of research. Uh, and um, and it's that birth that, that these kind of stories of birth and rebirth uh, of, of you know also of things like libraries burning and being rebuilt uh, and, and institutions sometimes in, in, in very direct ways being founded and then refounded that that I you know the structure of the book tries to to capture. So that so that we're we're we are you know things do change right it's it's not a history of stasis this is not just eternal repetition in that sense uh, but rather uh, it, this is a history of change at, at the scale of the entire book and, and this kind of you know almost two centuries uh, but it's also a history of repetition uh, in a kind of recursive sense uh, you know something like a spiral. In, in which, you know, there, there is a sense of having been there before, of uncanny, uncanny repetitions. Uh, and, and this figure of, of the corporate person is, one, is the one with which, as you say, I, I begin. And, and, and I, I attempt to show how the, the actual uh, constitution uh, and the material, I mean by that, I mean material constitution as well as legal constitution and reconstitution through a series of, of, of very well-known uh, legal cases, Supreme, the Supreme Court case, uh, uh, the Dartmouth case, as it's as it's colloquially known, um, uh, were underwritten or underpinned by the certain practices uh, that uh, that had 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 come had formed had coalesced on these still very you know relatively young or new and very small campuses like Dartmouth or Princeton. Uh, that were basically single buildings. I mean, there was pretty much one or two buildings, a few, a handful. Uh, but, but so, for example, Dartmouth Hall or Princeton-Nassau Hall, these these phalanstery-like structures, multi-purpose halls that was that that were that doubled as dormitories, as as as, as classroom buildings, and as administration uh, buildings, in which um, what um, the period discourse. Um, called the furniture of the mind was installed. And by furniture of the mind, this is from the Yale report of, of the late 1820s, uh, which took measure of this system. Um, the, by furniture, we can, we can think of that furniture really more as a verb, like, to fur, like furnishing of the mind, but, but also I insist 
we need to think of this as, as a noun or a collection of nouns, the material furnishing of the building and, and the set of social and, and, and media practices of, of, of for example, um, reciting repetitively and in a rote fashion, classical verse in a, in a recitation. Um, or or uh, later in the, in the later chapter, uh, drawing circles on blackboards, uh, and and so um, th- those kinds of repetitions also, belong, both of those belong to the the practice that again the period referred to as mental discipline, a kind of training of the mind, which was understood really as a kind of classical training, even when it it came to drawing figures, um, and uh, geometrical figures. Um, uh, in the sense of training citizens, and and so uh, so in, in that respect, these buildings operated much like the disciplinary institutions that Michel Foucault studied, the, you know, including carceral institutions uh, around the same period. You know, this combination dormitory, teaching, and administration building, uh, but but they also. Um, were built. I think you know Foucault kind of hints at this, but I, I try to 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 test it and to draw it out. They're, they're built as much around and 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 produce and reproduce in discipline as much as discipline. Uh, and you know, in other words, they're, they're extraordinary and quite funny stories, uh, and which which we have to understand also as very serious and very concerning stories of student violence. Of uh, you know both intimate violence, which is unrecorded, of course, for the most part in the dormitories, um, and most likely sexual, uh, completely unrecorded. But as far as I've been able to see, at least, but in in this period, uh, but but also public violence, uh, like the the setting off of explosive or the sh- the shooting of guns uh, uh, in these buildings, uh, as instances of you know what were seen to be. In, of, of protests, sometimes playful, sometimes not, uh, to which the institutions responded with various regimes of discipline, all of which, um, in a kind of dialectical interplay, uh, operated to constitute, again, through a series of technical uh, and material practices and infrastructures, the, 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 the object that ultimately was understood and, 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 and represented quite poetically by Edgar Allan Poe. Um, as an object of love, Poe witnessed it and and withdrew, in fact, from these practices at the when he was a student at the University of Virginia, and and his ode, essentially, to that uh, campus, uh, I think, uh, as I argue at least in the reading of of the poem, um, uh, is uh, is is a is a kind of ode to alma mater, uh, and, and expresses a kind of love for the corporate body. That is constituted in in you know as a in in a kind of perverse solidarity of discipline and indiscipline in in and around these these campuses, and it's that love, I think, that con- that 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 helps to shape what we can from here on recognize as essentially the political economy of of education and of knowledge to which institutions like alumni associations. Uh, endowments and uh, and other forms of, of giving, including corporate giving, um, uh, ways of paying respect and 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 maintaining 
affiliation, aff affiliation and affiliation uh, with the, the corporate person help to effectively produce what the, the legal doctrine of corporate personhood recognizes as the immortality of that body. Uh, that's a very key uh, characteristic that, that is developed uh, across the, the you know, kind of uh, legal history of, of, of corporate persons. And, and this, these, you know, so all of this can be understood as a kind of convenient fiction or just a kind of fantasy about, you know, social belonging uh, and, and so on. But, but I do argue, um, as, as you asked, I think also, uh, that that this is, and I rely on actually John Dewey's account of corporate personhood in the earlier 20th century, um, uh, that this is performative, uh, that that in the sense of this a speech act, effectively the performative, you know, from per, from from Austin to to Judith Butler, um, uh, of a of a of a, of a of a in this case uh, a media the performance of practices within the media complex that. In a sense, gives form and shape to this what sometimes it's called the legal fiction of of the corporate person, but a fiction, if you if we still can call it that, that I think is 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 eminently and and in, in some cases profoundly real, uh, with the kind of real material effects at, at both the economic and political level uh, that that I was just you know kind of hinting at um, with um, the building up of endowments out of love, uh, if not necessarily generosity. Yeah. And alongside this uh, figure of the university as corporate um, person, in this same section, you do a very different reading of um, uh, the, a mathematical figure, um, sort of the quotidian geometrical figure um, in, in books of instruction and the ways in which uh, these figures intersect with um, the lines of architectural drawing in producing an object lesson. So, you know, sort of like in 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 terms of how um, educational theorist Pestalozzi has put it, this idea of a very concrete thing that you can use to extrapolate and hone abstract reasoning. The idea is that, you know, being able to think abstractly is, is the sort of, you know, a mark of civilization. But in your analysis, you do this very interesting move in which you kind of um, make the status of of the object and you know the the concrete object and the the abstract um, ambiguous by kind of arriving at a reading of the visual image as both a concrete thing and also an abstraction. And what are the what are the implications of this this two way abstraction between um, in 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 the textbooks that you describe, and what does it do for instruction? Um, yeah, no. Again, asking, inquiring into the implications is is I what I, you know, in effect have hoped to you know that to evoke as as a response because on the one hand, uh, this this chapter on the translation of Euclid, actually the Euclid as a textbook, um, Euclid's Elements, in a in a set of different contexts in the early nineteenth century, uh, is you know is 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 a simply a description of the different ways in that. In which that took place, and the channels which that occurred, and and therefore, a contribution uh, to to media history in the, in, the, in the narrow sense of understanding print culture, and in this case, 
textbooks as components or elements in, in what, again, I'm referring to as media complexes. However, um, as, as your inquiry into implications implies, this is also uh, much more than that. Um, uh, it's, it's a, it's a, in a way, a, uh, an inquiry from the direction, uh, of engineering schools and of the land grant institutions, uh, the, um, A&Ms, the, which come later, but we have their precursors already, um, into, uh, into the, um, sanctity, uh, of classical learning, which on the one hand, produced um, critical humanists uh, and on the other uh, produced imperial sovereigns. And, and so it's that ambiguity also, the kind of double edge of, uh, of classical learning, uh, which continues, you know, to this day in debates. And I pick up some of that in another chapter, uh, the so-called culture wars around uh, the, you know, the, 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 the canon, Western canon and so on. Um, it, all of it, you know, these, these are usually center on texts, on written texts, on you know, on poetry, on literature, uh, sometimes on historical texts. Uh, and what I'm suggesting here is that we should also think about these these problems, which are boundary problems, um, uh, in relation to visual documents, uh, as as you say. And and in this case, or or in the, in the case of Euclid and the different translations that I compare. Uh, and I'm again building on and respond, but also responding to uh, other existing literature, secondary uh, literature, uh, in both in, on, on classical studies and on history of geometry, um, that uh, that interprets these this evidence in different ways. Uh, but that but basically construes Euclid. You know, it's, I think it's fairly obvious as a classical text. And, and says, okay, if we're going to con- concern ourselves with classical learning and its, pa- its past and its future, then we need also to account for that which is, um, is not usually collected in, you know, side by side in, in the debates about, you know, especially this is, these are the colleges, really, the, the liberal colleges, the liberal, what are now the liberal arts colleges, uh, that are in, some of which are embedded in universities and some of which remain independent, but, uh, in which uh, undergraduates are trained uh, as, as citizens, at least in those days, um, and so so that's one dialectic. And and I I should reinforce here that that methodologically uh, the the ambiguities that you're you know uh, alluding to also uh, are I understand uh, again at various levels and different scales uh, dialectically as conflicts. Uh, and, and contradictions frequently, um, again, amongst different interests, different, different actors sometimes, uh, uh, some of which, uh, some of which are, are perhaps provisionally synthesized, but none of which are, are ultimately fully synthesized and, and all of which interact in a, in a manner that, that is, is comparable to and, and, and I argue dependent upon the different scales and, and levels at which the elements of media complexes that mediate those complex as well as construct them, you know, um, interact. Uh, and so what we have uh, across the book, as well as within chapters like this, uh, is a dialectic of dialectics. In other words, there's the, the dialectical tension within Euclid between textual and visual uh, representation and, and knowledge production, or, or at least reproduction uh, in these, you know, recitations in which students are trained to repeat. 
Um, and at the same time, at the, but maybe at a different scale, the tension between humanistic and the production of humanistic uh, learning or reproduction, you know, in the form of, uh, of, of, of um, mostly elite citizens and uh, technical uh, or practical learning uh, in the form of uh, what the, if I'm paraphrasing, the legislation for the land grant colleges called the sons and daughters of farmers and mechanics. So a different social class um, uh, that who inhabited uh, engineering schools, but also came together uh, with some of the others, at least, uh, at institutions like West Point, uh, which was one of the first contexts in which Euclid was translated uh, from the French translation. So, um, so the um, a, a governing conflict at the at the scale of the textbook that I try to follow and then try to reconstruct in its relation to these others um, is that be, between as as you've said uh, visual and verbal um, learning uh, that 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 has to do with where the the translators would put the diagrams uh, you know and and there's there's a limit to to how far one can push this I think but but the because there are, there are other reasons for collecting all the visuals in the back of the book. Um, but that's essentially what happened is that in some of the translations, uh, the um, uh, one direction, uh, you find the visual, the diagrams, the circles, and, and the rest um, uh, gathered, uh, in, enumerated, you know, indexed at, at the back of the book in fold-out plates. And uh, and in others, they're integrated into the text, which is closer to the to some of the original, the prior translations. Uh, and but with this, the point being that regardless of the probably several reasons for that, uh, that this correlates with and was at the time correlated with um, uh, different forms of knowledge reproduction, which is to say. Um, knowledge, verbal and textual knowledge that leads to the algebra and eventually to the calculus and eventually to university-based higher uh, learning in mathematics, so that is research, uh, university, not college-based in that sense. Uh, and um, because by the middle of the 19th century, it was required, uh, familiarity with, with, with Euclid was required for entry into Harvard College, uh, which is then where some of this discourse was seeded around the future of mathematics. Um, and um, and then uh, practical uh, knowledge, which which is not um, necessarily uh, instrumental in, in the, this is the point in a way that that the, the kind of attendant distinction between pure and applied learning or disinterested and interested knowledge or or pure and and and, and instrumental or non instrumental etc. That kind of distinction I think collapses or at least. Um, is is troubled by and enters into a kind of internal conflict uh the the uh, the recognition that that even in the engineering schools the repetition of of, of these diagrams was seen also as a form of mental discipline a training into another kind of citizenship for in some sense a more democratic citizenship if we recognize the social the larger social class uh to which these institutions were dedicated um the we we you know the, the, we're not this is not simply how to make a machine uh because that's that's that was the thinking that that the, a machine is a complex of circles lines tangents you know and other euclidean figures um but but rather uh rather uh, a way to make subjects to way to make you know potentially democratic subjects or to train them 
into uh, the logic of, of, of mechanization and, and of course also into both into industrial capital. Classical learning was also trending into industrial capital. It's, it's, a, it's a misrecognition to, to make that distinction. Um, and so, uh, so this is the, the tension that I explore uh, in, in, in the book, in, in, the cha- in that chapter in the book and, and other, uh, elsewhere in the book as well. Um, so that, uh, you know, I, I hope in, in one way, the, the net result is sort of twofold. Uh, one is to effectively elevate Euclid into the status of the classical languages uh, that were, you know, uh, the center of the classical curriculum, still defended today. So if we're going to defend Homer and and the rest, we need to defend Euclid. And, and, and it's done. It's not that, that this is not practiced uh, but, but today, but, but I, I think it's, you know, still not widely recognized that visual literacy and verbal literacy can go together here. And while on the other hand, to some extent, deflating uh, the the classical curriculum into uh, what another chapter, the, the subsequent chapter describes as just another list. Uh, and, and that is foreshadowed here. I, I won't give all the detail, but by the lists uh, of bodies, dead, dead bodies, dead campuses, after the Civil War started to collect and then publish, meaning build uh, in memorials uh, on, you know, listing the war dead of their alumni on the campus as another way uh, to constitute and reconstitute, uh, to found and refound the corporate body. Um, and, and so as, as haunted by the deaths, and, but also by the unresolved conflict of like the large and, and, and ongoing today conflict um, that, that, that we call the Civil War. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. And what you're pointing to here is the fact that one can kind of read your book chapter by chapter, or as a series of several themes that actually cut across the book, um, including this idea of the corporate figure of, you know, these, um, in terms of lists, you have a chapter on on the lists of great books and how that becomes constituted and debated, and um, you know the, the the material apparatus that sort of supports and and um, uh, resists those lists. Uh, but I want to focus a little bit on print culture. Um, you know, moving from Euclid to your discussion of what you call print agriculture. Um, or these technical bulletins that were produced um, to circulate agricultural knowledge that also then goes on to shape the energy industry. Um, Because with it, and and this is something, you know, uh, uh, 
kind of a um, a representation or phrasing of yours that I particularly like, the way you so neatly bind the cultivation of the mind or culture to the cultivation of the ground or agriculture. Um, and another reason I find it so uh, fascinating is that, as you point out, what makes it possible to circulate this vast quantity of literature, which also occupies an ambiguous state between, you know, pile of papers and book, um, you know, it, it, its status as book is is you know, contested, debated. But what makes it possible to circulate this quantity of literature to a dispersed audience is, if I understand correctly, a kind of predecessor to media meal, that boon to scholars moving across the country. So with their last, you know, large quantities (laughs) of books and libraries. Um, So (laughs) I was, you know, I was very struck by this chapter. And, uh, and I was curious about, or rather, not, not I'm curious about, I, I would like you to be able to share with listeners how this mode of disseminating knowledge shapes, you know, not just the way uh, knowledge is disseminated in the US, but then also the international reach of land-grant universities. Yeah, and also email, we could say, we could, yeah. uh, and PDF attachments and, and so on, yeah. Uh, and, uh, well, first of all, again, I in, in this, and as in every other um, chapter in the book, I am indebted to work by colleagues and others. You know, this is like any book, all books are collaborative, right? Directly or indirectly. Sometimes we acknowledge, sometimes we don't. Sometimes. But but in, in this case, the um, there, there, there are several different dialogues going on at once. Um, I'll just select the most direct one in response to your question, which has to do with the relation between cultivation of the mind and, and, and agriculture. Uh, this is a direct response to the uh, hypothesis uh, within an originally German language branch of uh, media history uh, and, uh, and media theory uh, uh, that uh, the centers on cultural techniques, uh, that, that a term that in German has its origins in 19th century agriculture. So uh, and is is and and and, the, and the, the sort of users of this language today, uh, whom I cite um, in the book, uh, uh, use use it consciously as as a kind of, in this kind of double or there's even two or three levels of meaning attached to the term. So so I I share in this conversation, but I uh, I want to bring it a little bit. Closer to the ground, literally on in, in into the onto the ground, and also under it, as you mentioned in the kind of one of the concluding sections of the chapter um, when we discuss oil wells. But um, but that has to do with uh, yeah, this on the one hand, this network of postal systems, transportation, uh, telegraph, other communications infrastructures that grew dramatically in the later 19th century uh, and formed a kind of basis for uh, the land-grant institutions, you know, setting up in in locations that were quite remote from other, what were still sort of more centers of knowledge on the, in the U.S. on the East Coast. Uh, in, in, in the, after the Civil War, the Moral Act, the first Moral Act that founded those institutions was passed during the Civil War. And um, and uh, at the same time, uh, the extension, as I've mentioned already, of those and many other institutions into landscapes, uh, both material, like, like natural and technological, 
uh, well beyond the campus boundaries. So, uh, so some of the, the examples that I, I follow here at Wisconsin and Arizona um, are, uh, are examples of, of uh, agricultural uh, experiment stations set up off campus that required for their very existence, but at the same time fed and, 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 and you know, contribute to the growth of what you're, you know, you're, I think, quite rightly describing as media mail, you know, the, the, the circulation of the pamphlets and other gray literature uh, internationally, uh, really. What, what's also interesting is that that circulation, you know, technical reports on water quality, on soil, on 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 plants um, and their on plant ecology essentially, in in different uh, settings, uh, is accompanied by the actual circulation across the same networks of plants, seeds, and and water, uh, among other things, and and samples basically that move because this is what happens is that in these agricultural settings. In, in the case of, of both Arizona and Wisconsin, farmers become collaborators. They become co-PIs, we can say, co-researchers, often not named. I try to name some in, in, in Wisconsin in particular, but uh, and, and this is a, a, a practice I attempt to adhere to throughout the book of, of naming names that are written out of, of these histories, uh, including those as, who, who served Jefferson uh, in uh, in in Monticello, and also in another case, who rang the bell that called students to class uh, at UVA and broke the silence in the library at, at Virginia. So, so there, there, you know, there there are essentially service workers, but they're also uh, co-researchers in, in in the agricultural colleges. In this case, more so, uh, who who contribute to this circulation, and and they, they you know, so these pamphlets that they would send out like requests, send us your samples. And, and we're going to analyze those samples. They analyze seed, they analyze you know, particular crops. Uh, and, and barley is, is, a, is a topic of great interest. You know, in Wisconsin, we have the beer industry uh, developing there, but, but among other things. But, um, and, uh, and so, you know, it's, it's kind of extraordinary thing. And this extends ultimately, and, and I follow uh, one of these other figures, uh, from Arizona to North Africa to to and 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 to other col- sites, colonial uh, sites, uh, with the, the center on the, the cultivation of cotton and the cotton industry. Uh, you know, in Egypt, for example, he's there for a while, and um, and uh, and try to explain uh, how what, as you say, I refer to as print agriculture uh, belongs to the networks. Of more classically understood print culture that in turn belong to and help sustain the networks of empire. This is these are forms of imperial knowledge, uh, and so it's in this case triangulates in it tri- triangulates from basically from uh, from Arizona to France to to Egypt and other African uh, locales um, uh, to the Niger Delta. For example, but um, the uh, and and so you know this is not simply in a in a naive sense the extension of American university-based knowledge into some imperium American imperium it is that uh, in a variety of ways but but it's the what we're seeing here is the interaction of of old empires and new 
uh, basically through these channels and, and you know through the movement of, the, of things like date palms uh, and, 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 and but also very importantly and I, I want to emphasize this because uh, you know it's implicit in, in, in the figure of the, of the corporate person I alluded to it in mentioning Edgar Allan Poe and of course it's, it's everywhere when we consider uh, architecture as one among many media that, that what we are also dealing with um, it are, are, is the symbolic form uh, of, uh, of empire. Uh, and by that, I, I, I mean, I mean, I use that terminology in, in the combined sense of the philosopher Ernst Kassirer and the art historian Aaron Panofsky, uh, who, both of whom and Panofsky in particular make an appearance toward the end of the book. It's in fact, Panofsky's son, Wolfgang, who we find uh, in the Stanford Linear Accelerator as its founding director. Um, but, uh, but, but this, the, another symbolic form, but the, the, the circulation of symbols, like discrete symbols, uh, like date palms, for example, but also uh, signifying infrastructures out of which uh, a syntax and a grammar and a, and a, uh, a larger, in the Panofskian sense, logic of symbolic form arises. So, you know, what perspective was to Panofsky, uh, the frontier is, in a modified sense, uh, I think, to the later 19th century, particularly in the U.S. And, and it's these, these institutions are mediating, producing, these are frontier institutions, they're mediating and producing settler colonialism uh, and, and the occupation of, of these, these spaces and the displacement of indigenous inhabitants. Uh, you know, and it, it's usually sort of so. These are bloody uh, practices, but the blood is not does not appear on the paper. It's just not there either in Africa or in Arizona, and um, uh, and it and we have to look elsewhere. And and I try to do that again in in later chapters uh, for more direct material evidence. But nonetheless, uh, these these are sites, the agricultural experimentations. Uh, experiment stations, um, not only for the production of a particular, and in some ways a new kind of knowledge, scientific agriculture, which is very important for Marx, for example, in understanding um, industrialization, uh, and uh, at the same time, um, um, settlement and, and violent displacement. Uh, uh, and so uh, we, but, but, but also, uh, you know, enlightened knowledge. Uh, and I again, I didn't mention this particular footnote or footnote to the footnotes, but I'll bring it up here. Uh, again, it's made literal in a in another chapter. But uh, the, the entire book is a kind of running dialogue with uh, Max Horkheimer and Theodore Adorno's uh, thesis uh, uh, in the Dialectic of Enlightenment as to uh, the betrayal uh, or the internal contradictions, at least, and perhaps betrayal of the Enlightenment project, because I think there's a kind of poignancy also of this sort of, you know, fragility of, of, of this kind of knowledge and, and, and this kind of work and of the farmers sending their seeds and the survival and, and so on that, that is at somebody else's expense for sure and, and needs to be marked as such, but at the same time is also uh, contributing to a biopolitics of life. Um, and so these are life and death relations, you know, just like the memorials. Uh, and, and, and these campuses are, are, are both, they're both kind of memorials to, to lives lived and, and, and lived on like 
the corporate person, but also uh, the, the the possibility of of science and technology uh, to to enhance life, uh, you know, in a kind of humane and humanistic sense, which is another reason that it's important to recognize um, the allegedly for Adorno and Horkheimer for sure instrumental reason cultivated or practiced in you know engineering schools. You know, that was like the worst <laughs> them. Uh, as contributing in a humanistic, potentially humanistic uh, sense uh, to, to life and, and, uh, and to collective life and, 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 and uh, life lived together. So again, that, that's, one, that's, that's another dialectic, uh, un, completely unresolved, but very much built into the, these postal transactions. Uh, and also, uh, as, as you mentioned, the, the very problem of where to put these pamphlets when they do get collected in university libraries, the case of the University of Pennsylvania um, and, and the collection of the economist, Marx's favorite American economist, Henry Carey, um, his collection of, of pamphlets. He was a real pamphlet here. Um, the problem that they had of, of and, and of, of Dewey, the other Dewey, of the Dewey Melville Dewey, the Dewey, Dewey Decimal System, uh, of indexing and, and recording these pamphlets feeds back into the sort of headquarters, you know, of the research libraries, and and also in in, in other places. I mean, because these circulated very importantly. I don't speak too much about that, but into into government institutions, uh, in the Department of Agriculture, for example, in D.C. Uh, and there's a whole other set of transactions with the GLO, the, the General Land Office, and that, that again speak more directly to the ongoing occupation uh, of um, of the of the land. Yeah, and I found that chapter particularly interesting. Um, as I, you know, borrow books from libraries and and see books on museums, for example, in India, being you know sort of. Uh, I guess, accessioned into libraries thanks to the Public Law 480 program, which is, again, another great um, uh, program that that uh, collapses culture and agriculture in, 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 the, in that kind of sort of reading of cultivation that you're looking at. Um, so I was particularly interested in that uh, chapter as a result. And, you, you know, in this, in talking about this chapter, you you've been talking about interfaces, frontiers, the 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 space, the thickness of 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 what we sometimes call a boundary, um, uh, that we kind of think of as a line, but has you know um, a three dimensionality to it, uh, and this is something that runs through the whole book, but really I think uh, kind of reaches its um, apex or sort of culminates in in the last two chapters on on symbols. Um, you really look at different kinds of frontiers, sort of threshold spaces within the university, you know, the interface between what we call town and gown, um, and even the, the the metaphorical, I guess also real, endless frontier of, of science. And so you look at different kinds of frontier spaces and, and the way they are um, you know, the way they are articulated, the way they are collapsed in the space of the university, and the ways in which they contribute to sometimes an ambiguous subjectivity of, of the various denizens of, of the of you know, who are in these university spaces, well, going in and out of them, rather. Um, could you talk a bit about that? 
Uh, yeah, I, and in fact, I I will begin with at the beginning of the book to uh, it just uh, uh, just very quickly to elucidate the stakes as I conceive them because the book the introduction to the book begins with a close reading a close archival reading of, of a text by Edward Said the world the text and the critic uh, and through which through the through the Said Said's archive which is at Columbia uh, I attempt to explain in homage but also in extension or, or sort of elaboration of, uh, of, of Said's argument, uh, uh, the concept of world and attendant ideas like worldliness that, uh, to which I've really been alluding throughout in our conversation and, and which are named in the title of the book. Uh, and so, yes, I mean, the world does expand, uh, you know, spatially and, and also temporally, uh, but also in, in the latter section of the book. Uh, in in correspondence with the with the building out of what we were just discussing, the American Imperium, and eventually the military industrial complex, uh, and so this is again a way of thinking one form of imperialism in relation to another, the kind of imperialism that was contested on very famously and importantly on the Berkeley campus at the very threshold at Sather Gate this, in this kind of ambiguous space that you know they that they exploited as both legally on the campus and not on the campus and had to do where you could set up your table and where you didn't set up your table and and um, and and I you know try to use that case as as uh, as a way to recognize oppositional work done often led by students uh, but also you know done by faculty and uh, uh, to these processes, and Said is, a, is an extraordinary example, um, as boundary work, right? Uh, uh, of you know, at, at various levels, uh, that that needs to take to both recognize and perhaps straddle, or at least knowingly and maybe strategically take advantage of these the ambiguities and and topological enfoldings of inside and outside that we've been discussing, and so the the, the so, and I use that that term enfolding as as a way to you know respond to to I think the the first part of your question, which uh, has to do with the you know the, the elaboration of Frederick Jackson Turner, Turner's frontier thesis um, in the chapter on that that centers on the Berkeley campus uh, that uh, as 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 a, as a turning inward and uh, as well as a, a kind of limit territorial limit to imperial expansion. Because of course, you know, Turner gave that speech uh, in 1893 at the Chicago World's Fair and right about the time that the US was embarking on its more formally imperial ventures, you know, in, in the Philippines and in the Caribbean and so on. So, um, but, uh, but Turner also in, in other, some of his other writings, um, suggested the, uh, the necessity, which I pick up in these later chapters, uh, uh, for the sake of what Marx would have called primary or primitive accumulation, uh, but also then for the uh, uh, mediation of raw materials like uh, gold or iron ore or wheat or oil uh, into capital, but intellectual property, or as well as uh, and knowledge circulating in these pamphlets, as well as. Uh, material goods and money and so on, um, that uh, that 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 this required a turning inwards, like into the laboratory, uh, 
and, and so the last couple of chapter, chapters, a few chapters really in, in a kind of zigzag sequence, follow some of these turnings inward that are also turnings outward. So that's that's one of the spatial paradoxes, if you like, of of this media complex that to go inside is to go outside. You know? So there's nowhere that is more exposed to to the, you know, let's say logic of, you know, Lockheed and Raytheon and the various corporate persons running the military industrial complex than a laboratory at MIT. Uh, or you know any other such laboratory hardwired, uh, and it's exactly that those relations that the students in the free speech movement and and in the the anti Vietnam War movement, anti war movement, civil rights movement, some of them came together on on campuses in the later nineteen sixties uh, were contesting. They were contesting. They were they were basically speaking both through and with and against a media complex. Uh, and and I you know I try to document that uh, and so that's one way of thinking town and gown and 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 those those sorts of um, uh, conflicts as well uh, emblematized on the Berkeley campus by the cyclotron building up on up on the hill was an event which is an incredibly intense I mean a, a really profound turning inwards towards the 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 you know kind of inner structure of the atom and a huge machine and not just the machine but the, the apparatus of big science integrated this was started during the war later in, integrated into the manhattan project and and later into into you know the the development of nuclear physics the growth of nuclear physics on these campuses and, and by extension of the cold war um in uh in the in buildings like that uh, but also in little details like the, the, the little pieces of hardware, um, like the Stanford Klystron, which was uh, the basis uh, of it's a this is a microwave amplifier that was developed at at Stanford and was was by the figures who would later go on to found Varian Associates, which is one of the mythic uh, institutions, uh, in, you know, the kind of mythic origins of the of, of Silicon Valley. Um, and and was used to build what Frederick Terman, the provost, uh, uh, Stanford provost, and then president who who uh, developed this this figure. This is again this this symbolic figure, a poetics of the of the klystron and of, of electrical engineering called the steeples of excellence. So you know, very corny and cliched association of, of which Stanford is not, uh, you know, of college campuses uh, you know, uh, with with Gothic architecture. Uh, but um, but on the other hand, uh, quite an apt, uh, I think, signifier um, and representation of the, the neoliberal liberal logic of of academic, corporate, and often military research, uh, the nexus against which the students protested. That was uh, that was also um, uh, stored the, the the archives of which uh, the, uh, uh, of its its sort of ideology uh, were stored uh, and continue to be produced and reproduced at Stanford's other ambiguously um, figural steeple, the Hoover Institution, the Hoover Town, the Tower of the Hoover Library. So, uh, so the, um, so the, there's, yeah, there's, there's uh, throughout um, these, these last uh, few 
chapters. I mean, you know, formally this this is the second part of the book, so there are four chapters. Uh, one that begins at actually at UVA. So this is one of the examples of going backwards in order to go forwards, uh, but ends at Columbia and and with the. Uh, in fact, it doesn't actually end at Columbia. It ends uh, in in New Delhi uh, and, and and Mumbai, Bombay, uh, with uh, Bimra Ambedkar. Uh, sometimes, I think mistakenly, you know, kind of misrecognized as the Thomas Jefferson of India. I mean, the, the author of the Indian Constitution, uh, a political radical uh, who who trained in economics under. Uh, in, in in at Columbia, uh, sitting, uh, you know, for an unknown amount of time, but certainly a lot of time, uh, in Low Library, the the Central Rotunda Library, uh, that at the time he was a student was illuminated by this enchanted, tragic moon, a, a lighting fixture uh, produced technologically in collaboration by a collaboration of the architect Charles McKim and the physicist William Halleck. Uh, that provided moonlight, indirect light, not for reading per se, but a kind of ambient light uh, for readers like Ambedkar to participate uh, in the processes of enlightened learning and critical education, uh, along with other figures like Ambedkar's mentor, one of his mentors, John Dewey, um, in the same institution, such that, you know, and this is this is the response to to uh, uh, to Adorno and Horkheimer. No, it didn't end, uh, in, you know, in, in 1945, uh, you know, with the horror uh, and the tragedies of, of the war. Uh, this dialectic continued, and, and Umbaker is one of its bearers uh, as uh, as he attempted to claim rights uh, for, for, for Dalits, his own caste, uh, and it attempted to build into the Indian Constitution, not necessarily with, with full success, but uh, uh, the uh, you know uh, a dismantling or at least a mitigation of the caste system that continues to this day to be contested and opposed by uh, caste Hindus in particular uh, in uh, the new you know under the, the resurgent nationalist sign of India rising, and so. Um, the uh, you know there, there are there are contemporary histories you know in that sense written into these 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 uh, the, these accounts, um, but but it's it's again that the kind of intimacy of moonlight like reading by moonlight and the poetics of that uh, technologically produced moonlight nonetheless um, very different than the fireworks that at least potentially illuminated the the sphere the celestial sphere in the center of Boulet's cenotaph to newton uh from a century prior so uh so a dim light to with, with by which to read but importantly by which to read silently and so to, so the this the intimacies of silence produced again and uh, we'll go back yet again to not only to jefferson's uh um dining room the enslaved production of silence there but uh, through dumbwaiters, but also uh, to the library at Virginia, uh, on which the Columbia Library was based, and uh, in which the practice of silent reading was reinforced and, and, and produced, partly by the bells being rung that structured the day, such that time could be set aside for, for this, 
this kind of work. That library had, in the meantime, burned, and with it, Thomas Jefferson's own library, which a significant portion of which his books he had donated to the to the university. Uh, and but was it what was being at the same time that in the late 1890s being redesigned and rebuilt by the same architects, McKim, Mead, and White, and in a somewhat inflated form that, that was on the UVA campus until it was later restored, um, that, that could be compared to, it actually had the same lighting fixtures as Columbia's uh, Low Library, uh, which itself was built with money from the trade with China. So that was the Low family's money. And so so that that, that story of the, in a sense, the relation between universities and capital continues, uh, and, and it continues again in the laboratories, libraries, and other uh, knowledge producing and, and, and learning and teaching spaces uh, inside and out uh, of, of these uh, more, recent, more recent campuses. So, so the logic of the, the frontier in that sense folds inwards and can be found on the laboratory table and under the microscope, uh, as well as out there, you know, at the gate of the university, the, the and the, in the conflicts with with neighbors, with residents of the surrounding cities, for example, uh, or um, or or in the in the larger uh, geopolitics of knowledge uh, into which the research universities were integrated. I will just add one, but much, much more, uh, I mean, very present in our, in today's um, border wars, uh, which uh, are the culture wars that were fought around these lists um, that we call syllabi, uh, that uh, were also uh, in uh, forms of enfolding of, of ideas about, you know, territorial, but also intellectual sovereignty um, uh, about the uh, the greatness of certain books uh, at the expense of others uh, you know because that's what a list is it's a decision about something being on and something being off it's all it's a list is as much about what's not on it as what's on it and that of course has been the basis for the for, for very you know kind of practical but also very philosophical and political contestations. Uh, of, of around that have arisen around syllabi and curricula and continue to run up and down our educational system in this country and of course all around the world in a variety of different manners um, uh, as as we recognize again that the humanities play a central role in the production and reproduction uh, of on the one hand um, freedom uh, and equality, and on the other, power and inequality. Uh, and so, so you know, wh- whereas uh, another, you know, kind of this is, this comes up in in the last chapter in which Lewis Mumford appears, uh, <laughs> quite uh, I think desperately trying to set up a humanities curriculum at Stanford, and just as the steeples of excellence are being built, right? Um, that, uh, but a very you know a, a, a kind of Dewey esque. Uh, you know, uh, not not a classical curriculum, but it, although it has shades of that, but but a, uh, one that that's that that responds to the, the sort of uh, you know I think very much enlightened, but also constrained parameters given by American pragmatism. Um, but but it it uh, but it, at the same time it, it, we have to recognize, and this is maybe more evident in the in the um, 
the case of the campus chapel at MIT, and and if we remember that that we still our campuses in you know are uh, are populated still with chapels, non-denominational in most but not all cases, uh, but uh, that that are in, in themselves reminders of the origins of these institutions as, as ecclesiastical colleges, not MIT, but they still uh, they built a chapel after the war. Why? Because because in effectively um, techniques. Uh, and, and or, you know, what um, Mumford referred to later as the machine, like the mega machine, demanded meaning. It, 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 in a way, this was not just a compensatory gesture, you know, to offset the empty technical rationality of the laboratory and the military industrial complex. This is a part, like the geometrical diagrams, a part of the logic of the military industrial complex is to build a chapel, to produce and reproduce meaning. And MIT to found a humanities, you know, department, effectively, in which the School of Architecture was, and to this to this day, remains a, a, a kind of key component, um, uh, quite ambiguously. But um, but so so that that the, the kind of even as the humanities are being defunded. Uh, and displaced by big investments in linear accelerators, because you know th- at some point th- there there is uh, something like a zero sum process, not not absolute, but but there are limits to to where the money's going to go, and the money starts going very very dramatically and emphatically towards big science and large and, and extensions to you know various other forms of outreach, and you know we we, we know the story, but. And, and a, a very important part of this story has been and remains the defunding uh, of the humanities. Uh, and, and, and of course, but also the symbolic assault on the humanities. But that is, assault is, and I think even in a, in a more, this should be even more worrying, a kind of deadly embrace uh, that goes back to the, 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 the culture wars of the 1980s, in which the point amongst at least the particular culture warriors who sought to protect, preserve, and enhance the Western canon uh, was not to do away with the classics on the other, on, uh, and, and with humanities learning. It was, it was in fact, to, to invest in that. Uh, you know, some of these folks were just as dismayed uh, at, at all that military spending as, as their ideological opponents in the seminars and <clears throat> uh, in the humanities. Uh, and so, so that too, the, the, you know, the, the, the sort of contested status of the humanities, I think, sheds, sheds some light on, uh, on on certain truths about power, the relation between power and knowledge, and 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 this sort of political economy also uh, of, of 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 universities uh, during, in particular, this post-war conjuncture. That both comports with, but also modifies the uh, the sort of let's say the the more ne- that's sort of probably necessarily reductive um, battle cries in defense of the humanities, uh, you know, against this defunding, uh, while at the same time you know reminding us that these were the very centers of elite culture. This was exactly you know, almost in an exact reproduction, Jefferson's dining room. Uh, and, you know, the classics seminar in the form that was being protected by, um, uh, you know, in, in extension, I mean, you know, I mean, I'm, this is obviously not limited to classics and, and, and 
classics was one, also one of the disciplines that contributed to and continues to contribute most, most vigorously to the critique of, uh, of these hegemonies. Um, but, uh, but in the case of the Great Books Program and at Columbia, uh, the core, uh, certain aspects at least of, of the humanities core, um, this, this, uh, this continued the project of the production and reproduction of citizens, both in the enlightened sense and in the elite sense. Uh, and it's that, that with which we need to grow. Yeah, and I, I think you're pointing to a lot of themes that come through the book. So you mentioned Ambedkar um, and the kind of silence that's required for his study in the library, but also the kind of silence that he um, is a proponent of as well, this kind of editing out of past histories that can no, no longer serve a democratic present. And there is sort of, the, you really kind of bring together um, you know, what you call the material and ideational uh, aspects of um, various themes across the book. And one that really struck me is one of this, this question of sound and silence from bells that, you know, uh, you know, assist the architectural materials of stone and brick and mediating students' experiences of time or of deferring time. Um, there's also, uh, you know, acoustic paddles and chapels that do cause the, the voice of a speaker to impressively reverberate and then you know ones that you know say in Kresge auditorium that that cut out that reverberation altogether and so these are things that are sort of running through the whole book and I think it's worth um reading the book kind of laterally you know, sort of across chapters kind of looking for those um those themes that that you know I think many of my questions to you have been focusing on individual portions of the book, but what you're pointing out to and what really sort of shines through in the book and that readers should be attentive to as well is that these are the, you know, recurring, even recursive themes that, that, uh, that are sort of very um, richly and carefully articulated across the book. And this sort of brings me to a question of methodology. Um, I was really struck by your use of archives. And, you know, you mentioned um, a talk that Saeed gave at a 1974 conference. And, you know, you're not sort of just talking about the content of of the, the speech. You're talking about the paper that he was writing on, the the, the ways in which, you know, uh, you're discussing the the outline, his edits, you know, what each of those things, and, and not just in terms of content, but in terms of its materiality. Uh, but you have managed to turn findings from about 25 archives into uh, 250 pages. And I'm very curious about this process, like how you've how you've organized it, how you how you figured out what to put in and, and what to leave out, you know, just sort of, um, you know, these, this is the perennial question of the writer of uh, how, how to um, how to put something into book form, knowing the limitations of the book form, you know, because in some ways your book could very easily be a series of of, of um, it could be a diagram that you can make, you know. Uh, endlessly click into it could be this sort of interactive website it could it could be a number of things um and yet it is a book and so how do you how do you sort of work with the 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 materiality and, and media of the book form um how you know what what was your process in doing that yeah yeah no that's i mean this is like <laughs> sort of the impossible question that all authors have to uh, confront at some point. I'll, I'll try to answer the several layers of your question with a kind of allegory from a different, another archive, uh, one of the many, as you say, that I 
visited, in this case, at Tuskegee Institute and um, in a historically black institution, you know, in Alabama. And um, that it figures, it ultimately wound up the material from that archive figuring in in the chapter uh, that deals both with the, the in again, a kind of another kind of dialectic, uh, the Northern uh, founding and architecture and, and infrastructure of the <clears throat> women's colleges in the Northeast uh, and historically black institutions, principally in the Southeast, uh, of which I use Tuskegee, not some the more, you know, like Howard or Fisk or, or uh, uh, as as this sort of central case, uh, and um, and this you know deals with the debate slash dialogue between Booker D. Washington and W. E. B. Du Bois, and Du Bois is another figure whose shadow is cast across the entire book. Although I have left it to others and have relied on others to do the important work of of filling out uh, the, the the sort of filling out that shadow and filling out that history and responding to its challenges. Uh, but uh, but but amongst the challenges posed by the archive at Tuskegee was one uh, that kind of unforgettably related to two artifacts that were in the, in the space because you know university archives are very different. Some you know so we can contrast the Columbia archives where the Said papers are very well appointed, lockers and all kinds of you know protocols and you know, and so on with, with the you know, less well-resourced uh, archive at Tuskegee, um, which nonetheless, as I was reminded by its caretaker, very, it's very dedicated caretaker, um, uh, contains the most comprehensive uh, records of lynchings in, during the Jim Crow South. Uh, and and so on the wall of the was of the of the you know this very modest space um, there's a noose and uh, it was pointed out to me uh, that and others also in the, who were working because our you know this kind of work is also that other people you know and you have to be very quiet and and respectful of others but in this case we had a conversation. Uh, and uh, it was, you know, that that the that that you know that collection held the records of the lynching, the life, in other words, that was lost, the murder, uh, uh, executed by that noose. Uh, and there was also a brick, and uh, uh, and and this is, it's really that the noose is running in the background of the story of the brick, which is the story that I do tell uh, in um, in that chapter. Uh, we, we, why? Because the bricks in the early days of Tuskegee were made by the students. Uh, this was part of Booker T. Washington's sort of pedagogy of self-help. It was also pragmatic because they couldn't afford bricks. Uh, and, and it was a particular kind of training you know, into uh, a kind of vocational training that, again, like the the other cases in, in the engineering schools, was not simply, even though Tuskegee really was, a, a, in its founding, a kind of vocational institute, was not simply, you know, uh, pragmatic or utilitarian. There was a profound, you know, I mean, Noose kind of says it all, uh, a symbolism and, and, and an aspirational, 
program, again, contested amongst Washington and Du Bois, kind of baked into those bricks. Uh, and uh, and so, again, the intimacy and the extimacy, we could say, but of, of, of media complexes. And so, uh, but also of archives, right? So you have this, 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 the horror that is, that is, you know, quite dispassionately recorded in an archive like that. And, but also the hope, um, the, you know, in Jefferson's words, I'm uh, sorry, uh, in, in Washington's words, yeah, that's an interesting <laughs> twist. <laughs> the other Washington, Booker T, uh, in his words, uplift, not Washington or Jefferson. Um, and, uh, but, but, uh, in, in Du Bois's words, passage, and that's different. And for Du Bois, this was a passage through what he called the gates of toil. Yes, it might be necessary for the youth, the, the black youth recently emancipated in the South, uh, to learn, you know, manual skills in order to build a society somewhat autonomous, somewhat, you know, a free society. Uh, yeah, in the aftermath during Jim Crow, because this is all happening after Jim Crow, and uh, I mean the, the debate is happening, uh, and uh, you know, in partnership with you know uh, white abolitionists and/or philanthropists, um, but uh, but ultimately for Du Bois, the passage of what at the time he referred to as the talented tenth, which was the statistical concept that correlates very much with the kind of social statistics that were proliferating and that were actually the basis for uh, Turner's frontier thesis and proliferated in what would you know later become the, the, the scientific laboratories were still more or less under construction during the late 19th century. That, but, but so the passage fr from the, the manual and practical learning into higher learning as he still conceived it as a kind of neo-Kantian Du Bois trained and study, having studied graduate work in Germany um, uh, was was still the, the aim and so he his his focus was on uh, building out humanities curricular or curricular and or curricular of higher learning uh, in the what we now call the HBCUs and in, in, in these colleges to become universities that, um, run founded and run uh, by you know basically uh, a new black elite uh, so, um, so that, uh, that's, that's a kind of, you know, allegory of the archive, if you like, that, that is in solidarity with Said, because Said, of course, it, it, although his own battles were fought, fought elsewhere, uh, is, uh, is, uh, uh was a, a very eloquent, uh, spokesman on behalf of the oppressed, uh, and, um, and and wrote in solidarity in the text that I'm referring to uh, with Franz Fanon. Uh, that that I you know I, I really I decided to begin the book with with Said's papers partly again as, as I said out of homage but also out of uh, Said was a colleague at Columbia whom I met you know once or twice but didn't really get to know unlike other uh, senior colleagues from whom I've, I've some of whom were named in the book. Uh, from uh, whom I've learned an enormous amount, uh, but but uh, because he was uh, ill um, already at the time, but um, but I did want to you know want to recognize the importance that his work had had for mine, and so this this was one way of doing it. So that was a kind of 
you know, there's <laughs> something sort of personal about it. I visiting at Columbia Said's archive was sort of getting to know some somebody who, who I didn't really know personally. Uh, although I, I really had, I actually had the privilege later on of interacting with and working with other aspects of the institution with which Said was very closely involved. And, um, and so uh, the, uh, so, but, you know, not to, 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 to elevate one particular figure, there's also a, a moment in that section in, which points to Said's dandyism <laughs> and his personal affect and so on was well known and, you know, often remarked upon uh, and, and, you know, a certain kind of elite uh, disposition uh, and um, that, that comes out in his music criticism, actually, maybe more than in his literary criticism. Uh, and, I, and, and with that, with, with which I actually begin the book, his, his comments, and he begins his, his text uh, on this edition of, of a Glenn Gould recording, um, which reduces down to the black plastic of the LP, uh, but also to the very distant balcony in the in the Soviet actually uh, music hall, uh, you know, kind of symphony hall, uh, in which um, Gould performed, and to which Gould adjusted his performance, at least by his own account. Uh, who uh, uh, Gould, uh, uh, a performer, uh, an artist who was notoriously, famously uh, fastidious about the site, uh, the studio mostly of. Uh, of uh, performance and the, the instru instrumentation of the recording and, and so on. So, so that's also, this is also a way of introducing the concept uh, of the media complex kind of through the Said archive and even through a small typographic error, uh, which uh, is in, in one of the publications of that text uh, that we, you know, just to remind us is that we're all human. We all err. <laughs> we all make errors, even the eminent among us. And 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 I'm sure you know. I I don't know. I'm sure I don't want to. I want to invite readers to point out the errors in in the book. But in the in the preface, I I make the required gesture of, of insisting that all of those are mine. Uh, but but it, so you know, in terms of your the, finally the the how to put it all together. Uh, you know that that I, I'm referring to those kind of the eras because there's also a lot of different, the many different literatures and discourses and names and dates and and and, and you know bits and pieces that don't necessarily string together in, in a sing, single timeline or chronology that also one needed to keep in mind and and keep track of all along, and so the way I decided to try to do this was to, to, to make the fragments speak as much as possible, to let that, the, the bits and pieces do the talking and simply to listen to them. You know, that's why I'm, I'm saying listening to the brick and to the noose. I, I went into that library, to the archive in Tuskegee, you know, thinking I was, this is what I did. I read all the, the these reports and the, the trust, you know, the, the sort of presence, of course, all the kind of official documentation was there. Didn't have to in the end because it was later put online or maybe it already was. Um, and uh, and then, but yet there was the brick, and then there was the brick yard, which I was able to see as well, uh, no longer in use. And and that in that case, the material space and, 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 and you know the, the the material, the hardware, literally, uh, of in the building in which the the archive was housed, was just as important. And so, um, so those fragments, bits and pieces of hardware, essentially, are what I've tried to collect. And gather so so yes. Since you're referring to 
to a kind of museology of the archive, if you like, that 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 this is a kind of museum. Uh, uh, I don't I don't whether it's an archaeology museum or an art history, you know, an art museum, architecture museum, or 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 a, or a, <clears throat> a museum of media, of science, of technology, is up to the reader. But I really did did try to think about how to best allow the artifacts collected to speak uh and 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 to, to and to speak that and i tried to also to speak back with them and, and to set one in conversation with another uh and and you know to build out the relations the networks the the but also the the contradictions and conflicts amongst and between the speakers which is not to exclude uh, you know, I know well that this is a debate uh, amongst those of us to do this kind of work. Uh, the humans, the, you know, in a sense, more legible and audible speakers who, as it turns out, I think this is more or less true, we all have to admit, uh, of all academics, who like to hear their own voices echoed back to them, uh, as I am doing now. And and I do notice that the particular interface that we are using does not reverberate in quite the way that was built into the Rockefeller Chapel at the University of Chicago very careful, carefully by the acoustic engineers, such that the speaker at the lectern, who could be an ecclesiastical speaker or a secular speaker, a professor or a priest, um, could hear in very, very slight delay, you know, and just the reverberation of their own voice so that their own insecurities could be assured, so that they could be made, could be affirmed by that echo, which we all know. We recognize it. We, we, we miss it when we don't hear it. I, we have to acknowledge that and admit that uh, we who speak in public in different ways and, and through uh, with and through uh, different different media, um, so you know those tile with the tiles and the plaster and all the the elements that that in the different uh, auditoria that you mentioned um, that I collect amongst the other pieces of hardware uh, are are instruments that enable to enable but also condition and 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 and. Um, in frame, uh, in the sense of giving meaning to uh, speech, both public and private, uh, in a manner that I think we all we do have to uh, take into account as as we attempt to do to to in this case to in my my attempt was to write something that was not simply and despite the even personal uh, aspects that I'm mentioning, but that was not simply an autobiography uh, of some, you know, uh, idealized institution or, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, a, a, a sort of um, a, a simple dismantling, uh, a, uh, a, you know, a, a sort of a direct frontal attack on uh, the, the institution. This is a critique for sure. But but critique uh, is something that is practiced out of care, um, and 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 commitment, and and perhaps as a form of responsibility uh, to these institutions, which, as I argue, I say in a couple of places in the book, need to be protected and defended against assault by those who who truly 
seek to um, either occupy them, take them over, or um, or, or destroy them, uh, destroy and, and truly extinguish, you know, this flame uh, of enlightenment. Uh, uh, while at the same time recognizing that critique is necessary uh, for renewal. And I'm not just talking about, you know, kind of minor reform. Sometimes, and I think this may be the, the time in which we speak, uh, may be one of those in which it's, it's necessary to think structurally. Uh, and deeply, uh, or shall we say, infrastructurally, uh, about uh, about what needs to be changed, transformed, uh, about the institutions for which we care, uh, and that in some ways <laughs> care for us. Well, I want to be mindful of your time, but thank you so much for taking time to chat about your book. Um, uh, usually we ask at the end of the interview what whether you could share what you're working on now. Um, I don't know if you want to touch on that at all, but thank you again for making time to chat about this. Thank you. I, I will only just say very quickly that I am I'm working on two projects. One about the political ecology of oil and engineering, which derives from one of the chapters that we discussed and some of the archives that are there. And another uh, which has to do with the, uh, the historical and, and philosophical relation between architecture and philosophical aesthetics that builds on the problem posed by symbolic form at the end of the book and returns to questions concerning ideation that, that we were meant discussing in the beginning uh, of our conversation. So all of that is hopefully to come uh, and maybe to be continued. Well, I look forward to that. And thank you so much again for taking the time to chat about your really rich, really complex book that I really encourage uh, listeners to dive into. There's there's so much that we just could not cover in this in this interview. And um, I really encourage readers, well, listeners rather, to, to become readers as well and uh, to take on the, the materiality of the book. Well, thank you very much again, Reinhold, and this discussion of uh, the book, Knowledge Worlds, Media, Materiality, and the Making of the Modern University, published by Columbia University Press in 2021, was brought to you by the Architecture Channel of the New Books Network. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe to our channel wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW, root void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.